When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Every time there's some much brighter news, Matt dips into his back pocket and produces a Heinz 57 variant. Four. Sleepwalking into a future that isn't just scary, it's dark, and we have no idea the impact this is going to have on children. Three. They played the card. Oh, let's really wind everyone up just to try and make the Brits look bad because they've totally outclassed us with vaccines. And they are being ignored at the moment, and it's frightening. It's frightening me. One. We have liftoff. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. So here we are in the first week of February. Dry January's finally over. Not that many of us kept off the source. And amidst the gloom, the endless TV news, doom porn, what do we know? We know the COVID case rate is down significantly from over 60,000 a day in early January to well under 30,000 now. The daily death rate from, with or related to COVID is also sharply down. The UK's vaccination programme's motoring. We've now jabbed 15% of our population compared to an EU average of just 3% and even less in France. Reason enough, it seems, for Emmanuel Macron to diss the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine that the EU's apparently so keen to get its hands on. We know also that Captain Sir Tom Moore has unfortunately passed away at the ripe old age of 100. And to top it all, we know, or at least I know, because I read it in Alison Pearson's Telegraph column, (laughs) that Kate Bingham, head of the now disbanded UK Vaccine Task Force, she once came 19th in the World Bog Snorkeling Championship. (laughs) Co-pilot Pearson, is that why she's doing such a good job? Bog snorkelling? And how about a planet normal bog snorkelling outing once this ghastly lockdown's lifted? Can't we get a wine bar instead? (laughs) (laughs) After the bog snorkelling, after the bog snorkelling. (laughs) That little small blue bar in Claridge's with a nice cocktail would do me, Halligan, rather than being (laughs) underwater in a 60-foot trench. (laughs) In the fens. (laughs) Nothing wrong with the fence, though. We've got lots of listeners in the fence. Lots of listeners in the fence. I'm not too far from the fence. Yeah, Kate Bingham, what a great job she's done, hasn't she? And I just put in that bog snorkeling champion story because I thought it just epitomised a sort of rugged individualism, ruthless competition, which explains why we have got this fantastic lead in vaccines, as you mentioned, Liam. But apart from the sad news of wonderful... Captain Sir Tom Moore leaving us, although leaving us having provided such good cheer, hasn't he, for this very dark year and just did such a good job of just making people feel happy and and that things were possible at a time when all the other forces were telling us, no, we're all locked up. And he was a kind of anti-sage, wasn't he, Captain Tom? (laughs) What an innings, a hundred. A century and a great century. And as the light was dying across the pavilion, just, just just a wonderful turn, really. But it's been otherwise it's been a fantastic week despite what Mr Matt Hancock will try and tell us. Have you noticed Liam how every time there's some much brighter news Matt dips into his back pocket and produces a Heinz 57 variant which this week it's the South African variant it was the Kent variant I mean you know shortly to be followed by the Peruvian variant I think we had the Brazilian variant didn't we but basically <laughs> they don't want to let us off the choke chain. They really don't. So everything's looking very, very good indeed. We've got some fantastic figures from George later on. But really, I think all this door-to-door testing, it's basically designed to to tell people, you know, don't feel too pleased, don't get excited, don't think you can have a summer holiday, even though the figures will be down to, you know, the teens by then. But 
As you said, Liam, this new data, exciting new data, shows that the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine offers 76% protection against COVID after just one dose. And that's up to 12 weeks after the vaccination. Even better, after two doses, the efficacy, can I say that word? Isn't it efficacy? Efficacy, okay, it's efficacy. I was gonna, I'm going to sing to you in a minute. The efficacy goes up to 82%. Wow. And do you remember, most efficacious in every way. We'll drink and drink and drink, won't we, to Lily the Pink. Most efficacious in every way. <laughs> do you remember the scaffold? I do, I do. Most efficacious in every way. Anyway, vaccine, fantastic. Despite what President Macron has tried to imply about this vaccine, it's actually really good. Just on Macron, we can't let this pass because you once had a bit of a thing for smoothie pants, Macron. <laughs> Obligatoire. You thought you might get in there. You could be the new younger woman in his life. <laughs> It's Madame Macron. I think she's she's even a bit manages to be a bit older than me. She looks slightly better in a miniskirt, I have to say. <laughs> yes. Well, what I found out because I was looking up French for sourpuss and, and came across <laughs> Le Vieux Grand Cheur, which was sourpuss. But even better was Peace Foire. <laughs> that really captures it. It's almost onomatopoeic, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Cold piss on our, on the old bloody Anglo-Saxons and they're rubbing their noses. Or as Monty Python said, I fought in your general direction, you English pig dog. <laughs> your father was a hamster. Your mother smelled of elderberries. <laughs> I think that was the general gist, wasn't it, when he went round casting aspersions on our perfectly good vaccine. So you don't fancy him anymore? It's a, it was a very short-lived but passionate relationship, but it's, it's over now. C'est fini, c'est tout fini. Can we just return to this exciting data? So the thing about the new, this high protection rate of the vaccine is it, it does address, Liam, the criticisms of the government's decision, which you'll remember, to delay the second dose by three months. So this really knocks that on the head. And the same data also suggests that the vaccine reduces transmission of the virus by 67%. And why that's important is that they knew it diminished symptoms. They knew it would make people less likely to go to hospital. But now here's the proof that if you've had the jab, you're pretty unlikely to pass it on. And for your benefit, because you've had COVID, I think I've had COVID, just one dose of the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine, it, it should be enough for those of us who've had the virus. Researchers found a very high antibody response after one dose of the jab amongst people who have had COVID. And that's what you'd expect from the epidemiology. But you'll notice, Liam, that the government's kept very quiet about antibodies in the population. Potentially millions of British people already have some immunity because they've had the coronavirus. And the implications of this are huge. And going forward now from this week, I think the pressure is going to be building and building and building. Mm. Because if you add the number of vulnerable people who've had their first vaccine, and if we keep going at this fantastic rate, that will be 10 million to the number of people like us potentially who have a high antibody response because they've already had COVID, we are really now getting into territory where it becomes quite hard to justify further lockdown, especially given what we hear every single day about the terrible collateral damage that lockdown is doing to people with other illnesses. I know, I understand that Boris is wary of overpromising. He's been caught up before. But I foresee now, from now on, with this new data, huge pressure to lift restrictions because if so many people are protected, what are we doing about protecting the people who are in trouble from other illnesses and children and people in care homes? That's right. I think people are doing the maths, aren't they? They're seeing that you know, well over four-fifths of over 80s now vaccinated, first jab, over 70s, the number's going up all the time. That incredible number, we're now at 15%, as I said. Really, with the UK having no equal among the other European powers, and yet we're now hearing that the Scots may open their schools to at least mm. their younger pupils from the 22nd of February, just three weeks' time. Mm -hmm. That's incredible, less than three weeks. 
similar noises from the Welsh, it's going to be very, very difficult for Boris Johnson to keep schools closed when schools in other parts of the UK are open. Yeah. And when, you know, we're one of the few countries in Europe that has actually closed its schools this time round. And what we've been doing on Planet Normal in recent weeks, haven't we? And it hasn't really been a conscious decision. It's just reflected the weight of emails in our Planet Normal inbox. We've been trying to focus on some of the human fallout from lockdown. Mm. We talked to Lucy last week, who's a student up in Durham. We've got other education-related guests today. Mm. And it is going to be difficult for Boris to stop this tide, this yearning among people to ease the lockdown. And as you say, that's why amidst all this good news, there's so much doom and gloom still happening. We're constantly told of new variants and and so on, even though there may not be much evidence for them or the evidence remains doubtful. And of course, we don't want to waste what we've done so far. We don't Mm. want to blow it, if you like, at the last minute. But remember, if you lay out a roadmap, as so many of the COVID recovery group in the House of Commons are arguing Mm. for, if you lay out that roadmap, if you tell businesses all other things being equal, this is when you can open up, they can get bookings going, they can start to get cash back in, you can save an awful lot of businesses, an awful lot of jobs that would otherwise go down. Because every week that lockdown carries on, there is more human misery, which does lead to medical outcomes. It does lead to deaths of despair. It does lead to people, sadly, taking their own lives and other instances of deteriorating, seriously deteriorating mental health. They've got to name a date soon. They've got to name a date soon. Yeah, they absolutely do. And just to cite one example of what you're talking about, Liam, Professor Gordon Wishart, he's one of our leading cancer experts, he pointed out that there were only 12,068 patients with screen-detected cancers between January and November 2020 compared to 19,715 in the same period the previous year. That's a drop of 39% in cancer screenings picking up actual cancers as a result of the suspension of NHS England cancer screenings and services during lockdown restrictions. And that also, there are 32,000 fewer cancer patients were diagnosed in 2020 compared to 2019. I mean, I can read that out, but that's horrifying, Liam. That's that's absolutely horrifying. That will be many younger people. That will be people with families and, and, and young children. We always turn to George, don't we, at some point? We do. So George, he or she, we don't disclose his or her true identity. George works for NHS England. George has access to the NHS England database and feeds Alison information at our request and following requests from our listeners to know and understand what's really going on. So this week, Liam, what I, I put to George was something the Prime Minister said. We are starting to see some signs of a flattening, maybe even a falling off of infection rates and hospitalizations, but they are still at a very high level compared with hospitalizations in the last 12 months, at really a very high level. So they were Boris's words. They were Boris's exact words. And George's reply was, I would say that's a total manipulation. They are still higher but they are now falling as fast as they were rising just a few weeks ago. I'm sure it's all part of the plan to keep us so terrified we don't start rampaging around the streets. Looking up some figures about rates of infection across the southeast, and we are back to where we were in October in most areas in terms of community infections, but with the direction of travel going down, not up. As soon as there are increases in infections, The language becomes that of surging and rocketing. But when it's going down, the language is much more cautious. You could say, says George, that infections are plummeting now and not be very far off the mark. And this is interesting, again, that George is saying that the number of admissions with COVID into hospitals and those in diagnosis hospital COVID patients we talked about, they are falling just as fast as they were surging just four weeks ago. London bed occupancy with COVID was almost 50% a couple of weeks ago. Yesterday, it was 27%. But George goes on to point out that what seems to be happening 
is the influx of COVID patients into hospital is slowing right down and very quickly. But the big issue now, Liam, is that while new patients are not coming in, the sicker ones who are admitted a few weeks ago, they're still there with quite large numbers in critical care. The good news is people are living. You know, lots of people are living now that wouldn't have been living back in the spring because the treatment is so much better. But some hospitals are still operating in stretch conditions. And this is crucial. They can't start admitting patients with other illnesses in case of A, they catch COVID or B, they require critical care post-operation and there aren't any critical care beds. And George finishes off by saying, I just can't bear what the government has done to normally sane and rational people. Even qualified doctors making bold statements like all the evidence points to asymptomatic transmission. It absolutely does not. The only evidence for asymptomatic transmission is that one in three cases are asymptomatic. That doesn't mean those are the ones spreading the virus. And this is a final, really lethal statistic, Liam. The latest figures from Public Health England show that 60% of COVID cases are from care homes and homes where care is provided by external agencies. Wow. So that is 60% of the infections are now coming and we're in February and we still haven't sorted out this care home transmission of infections, have we? You know, when this public inquiry happens, once lockdown is lifted, and it will happen, I I, I genuinely think you and I aren't scientists, we're not epidemiologists, but we have really followed this debate closely. And I would say that between us, we've spoken to an astonishing range of people Mm. who are very close to the science, doing the science from the NHS front line. One of the things we said very early on Planet Normal is this, why aren't we recruiting staff, young people in particular, to live in care homes for eight-week periods at a time. Mm. It's not everybody's cup of tea, but for some young people, it would be a fabulous opportunity to make some proper money, to get some savings together, maybe Mm. to put the deposit down on, on a house or at least put a deposit down on a rented flat of their own or something to amass some income. So you have quarantined, if you like, care home staff who stay in for long periods of time and then are rigorously tested on the way in and on the way out. So that's one thing. And I think that's a major mistake we've made. The other thing which came to my mind, listening once again to your mesmerising report back from George. Are you extracting the peace foire, Mr. No, no, absolutely. I think (laughs) this stuff is... (laughs) You just wanted to say peace far, didn't you? I did. I just want to say it again. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) No, I I think joking absolutely aside, well, you know the emails we get. People are are hanging on on these reports from somebody who they've come to know and trust, somebody who is risking his or her career, it has Mm -hmm. to be said. The other thing that struck my mind listening to what George had to say just then was that statement from Public Health England, which I reported last week, Public Health England are saying, and this is a quote, one fifth of all coronavirus infections are thought to be contracted, contracted, I stress, in hospital. So we know that this is happening. You're right. The cross infection rate in hospitals is extremely serious. And it is something that we both feel very, very exercised about. Also, something I'm feeling very exercised about this week, Halligan, is our old friends, the European Union. Have we left yet? Have we left? Shonky retreads. That's up there in the planet normal vernacular, isn't it? When we get these planet normal mugs and, oh, yes, listeners, (laughs) they're coming. They're coming. When we get these planet normal mugs and other merchandise, I mean, the the basic planet normal mug, doesn't it? It has, you know, news and views from from beyond the bubble and all the rest of it. But we've got to have sort of collector's versions with things like orthogonal to the orthodoxy, with things like triangle toast eaters, with things like... (laughs) Shonky retreads and other Planet Normal phrases we've come to know and love. Planet Normal listeners will remember that a few weeks ago we were lucky enough to have Mark Higgy, former Australian ambassador to the EU, as our guest. And when I asked Mark how he would describe the calibre of people like (laughs) Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, and some of the other people who were parachuted into those positions in 2019, you'll remember, Liam, because they they don't bother with things like elections because those can be a bit troublesome, can't they? Having been failed politicians in their own countries. (laughs) Well, that's why Mark brilliantly described them as shonky retreads. (laughs) 
because he said that they'd usually ballsed up spectacularly in their native lands so that they went to Brussels where they could bugger up with no interruption and no annoying electorate sort of holding them to account. Can I just say, I think perhaps my favourite moment in a week of absolutely top moments was when the European Union had triggered Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which it had promised just a few weeks ago that it would never trigger except, you know, in the event of a nuclear war or something really dreadful. And an EU source, when they were questioned about this extraordinary uh, emergency measure, described it as an oversight. Now, an oversight is not getting the banana bread out of the oven. Uh, It's not putting up a hard border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. So I did like that. So I'll be using an oversight now for uh, any of my major misdemeanours. But co-pilot, fill me in on the EU vaccine fiasco. Well, the EU clearly grabbed, if you like, the power to oversee the vaccine rollout of its member states. And some countries that were quite advanced along the lines, including the Germans and the Dutch, gave up that power to Brussels. And of course, it's turned out to be a fiasco because whereas the Brits, the Americans, to be fair, and certainly the Israelis and some other countries Mm. invested firmly, boldly, diligently in vaccine development, production and rollout, the EU didn't. The EU dithered and delayed. The EU was more interested in making sure the French companies got a sniff of the state largesse rather than going for the best vaccines that had the best chance. And unfortunately, and it is unfortunate, and I do think in the end the UK will move to help the EU, much as they won't want help, certainly the Eurocrats in Brussels won't want help, to make sure our friends and neighbours nearby are vaccinated as quickly as possible because there's no point in us vaccinating our island. You know, we're probably the most visited country in the world per capita of any of the major economies. We need the EU to be vaccinated and sharpish. And Mm. the political games that have gone on are just ridiculous. We've seen it with Emmanuel Macron. We've seen it with Ursula von der Leyen. And something that really sticks in my craw is that You and I watched the EU play politics with the Irish border, Mm. exquisitely sensitive frontier, massively improved relations since the Good Friday Agreement. Mm. They were playing politics with that. They were using ancient enmities to try and keep the UK inside the ambit of the European Union. And they're trying to do it now still. They played the card. Oh, let's really wind everyone up Mm. by putting a border across the island of Ireland again just to try and make the Brits look bad because they've totally outclassed us with vaccines. And then Ursula von der Leyen did this with absolutely not a shred of understanding or sophistication about what she was messing with, frankly, politically. Mm. And then her ridiculous spokesman makes a joke about the Pope when talking about Northern (laughs) Ireland. Oh, you've really done your research well there, mate. That will go down (laughs) like a cup of cold sick with both sides. And then they say, oh, sorry, it was a mistake, an oversight. They retreated very, very quickly. Why? Because the whole world condemned them, and rightly so. Hello, former England hooker Brian Moore here. Well, the Six Nations is back, and so is my podcast, Brian Moore's Full Contact. Each week, we will get the biggest and best names from the world of rugby to dive into every rook, mall, and TMO decision. You can't nab a front row seat this year, but with our podcast, you don't need to. So just search for Brian Moore's Full Contact on your podcast app, hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss it. As we just heard, last week's Planet Normal Stowaway was Lucy, a science undergrad from Durham University, a bright, articulate young woman. She reported from the student front line, trying to complete an undergraduate lab and field trip based degree during lockdown. Do have a listen on the Planet Normal archive. And we're sticking with education again this week, welcoming Rod Grant, a teacher with 31 years experience, now head teacher at Clifton Hall School in Edinburgh with over 400 pupils from the age of three all the way through to 18. Rod wrote to Planet Normal a few weeks ago, and we read out his email. That message and his Facebook posts have attracted national attention, because Rod's concerned, deeply concerned, 
about what lockdown's doing to our kids. But given the career risk of teachers speaking out, even head teachers, I asked him what finally motivated him to write to myself and Alison. Well, I think it, it comes about from a, a real genuine fear, a fear of what I saw really in November and December. I think when the first lockdown happened and we reopened our school on the 11th of August, I was expecting problems, actually. I was expecting perhaps poor behaviour or difficulty for the children re-socialising or engaging properly with lessons. Or I, I felt that that three-month lockdown was a significant amount of time. But actually, I, I was hugely heartened in August because they came back and they were they were full of life and they were just delighted to be back at school. And we had really no issues at all. But it was funny, as time went on, those issues that I'd anticipated seeing in August, I saw very clearly in November. A huge deterioration after that kind of climax of return, of that kind of happy feeling. That was replaced by, I mean... I, I hope I'm not being too strong here, but it, it's, it came across to me as almost like post-traumatic stress syndrome. I mean, it really did strike me with considerable fear. And so from November and into December, we, we, we saw um, an increasing number of people seeking counselling help, support with external agencies, um, parents reporting a depression. And then, of course, the Christmas holidays came and the announcement then came that uh, on Boxing Day, you know, Britain would basically close down again and the schools wouldn't reopen. And I think that's what really preempted that sense in, in me that I had to write something, you know, that it, it wasn't good enough just to stand back and say nothing. Because, you know, with 31 years of experience, I was seeing things that I had never seen before. Kids breaking down really over over very small minor matters. And of course, the, the, the thought then came, well, if you have another extended lockdown, what on earth is it going to be like when we get back, whether that's later this month or, or, or in March or, or even later? And what happens if there's a further lockdown? You know, there seems no other strategy. So yes, incredibly worried at the moment. You have three decades of teaching experience. You're the head of a very reputable school in Edinburgh, nursery, junior and senior school from three to 18, you're seeing the full range of impact on children. Which age group are you most concerned about, Rod? I think the most obvious age group that are affected are the teenage years, because I think they they have a a tough time anyway, even in normal times. And I think particularly those that have got examinations coming up, there's a total lack of clarity, certainly in Scotland, but I'm sure in England too, about just how we quantify um, children's abilities when they haven't been in school for, you know, four months of this academic session. And, you know, that's posing all kinds of problems. The fact that you can't plan because you don't know when the schools are going to reopen just adds further to that headache. But actually, you know, when I really think about who's the most affected and who am I most worried about, I'm actually really worried about the kind of three to six, seven-year-olds. The tiny ones. Yeah. If you ignore the first two years of life in terms of social interaction, then, you know, you're, you're talking perhaps almost half a child's experience has been locked away. Seeing adults wearing masks and hearing on the news or on the car radio almost doomsday adverts about staying at home and protecting lives. And I've had harrowing stories from parents in my own school of four and five-year-olds who are now frightened to go on a play date because they think someone's going to die as a result of it. You know, these children don't have the experience or the vocabulary to express their feelings but they're hearing really scary stuff. And I don't think governments or media broadcasters actually ever think about this message is going out, for example, on radio into a car and there's a five-year-old in the back seat and they're listening. And if you say, is this journey essential? Stay at home, save lives. What's that doing to a five-year-old? Well, I'll tell you what it's doing to them. It's making them terrified. When you wrote, Rod, most powerfully to Alison and I at Planet Normal, you said children need to be with their friends, they need to play, they need to develop their social and academic skills. It strikes me that even though children are least likely to be affected by COVID itself, they're most affected by lockdown, more than anyone. Yeah, there's no question. There's no question. And then no one's championing them. MPs aren't championing them. The teaching unions certainly don't seem to be championing them so it comes down to you well 
and others like me. I'm sure there are others, people who are raising their head above the parapet. I mean, it's a scary time because I think the difficulty in speaking out is we've, you know, we have personal experience of what COVID can do. You know, I've never denied that this is a terrible, terrible pandemic and that, that people are suffering. But it, it seems to me that it's the only thing that matters just now. And whether you look at industry or commerce or hospitality or you look at children or you look at the loss of, of jobs, the sector of society that is definitely most impacted upon is children. And yet they are largely ignored as if, oh, children are fine. They'll bounce back. It's no problem. You know, they're resilient. And then I look around at the adults who are falling to bits and crying. And you think, well, if this is what it's doing to adults, what the heck is it doing to a five-year-old? You're right. Nobody is is kind of championing or, or being the voice for children. And I don't want particularly to take on that role. But it strikes me that political parties and uh, the media are all going down one route, saying that lockdown is the only thing that works. Well, it can't be. Because if the pandemic and the vaccine, for example, if there's a variant and the vaccine doesn't work on it, are you really suggesting that we could have three or four years of kind of cyclical lockdowns? Well, no, I don't think anybody would suggest that. So there has to be an alternative strategy. Now, it's not for me to work out what that strategy is, but total lockdown that involves keeping children away from other kids is incredibly harmful. You know, we're sleepwalking into a future that, that isn't just scary. It's, it's dark and we have no idea the impact this is going to have on children. But in my experience, going back to that three decades of teaching, I have never seen anything like it. And that was after the first lockdown. I mean, heaven knows what I and schools like mine are going to face when we do eventually get back. But it, it ain't going to be pretty. You are a frontline teacher, but and this is planet normal. But I wouldn't say you're a normal teacher, Rod. And with respect, you were an entrepreneur before teaching. You've written a self-help guide for teenagers yeah. called Success Decoded, which listeners can buy through Amazon. You yourself unprovoked by me just used the phrase head above the parapet how's the response been about the fact that your email was read out on planet normal i checked with you beforehand <laughs> that you were happy for me to use your name and and you were happy a lot of head teachers a lot of nurses doctors whose emails we read out they stress anonymity because they're worried about the career blowback do you feel that you've hindered your progression in the teaching profession by speaking out, by speaking to me now? Well, you know, to be honest, the older you get, the less you care about what people think about what you say. <laughs> I'll yeah. to that. I mean, I'm, I'm 56, you know, so I'm not looking, I'm not, you know, heading for another headship elsewhere. Or, And to be honest, I really don't care what people think. I think it's more important, you know, that I can live with myself and that I can hold my head up and say, well, as a result of, of lockdown, you know, this has happened to child A, B and C. And did I do everything I possibly could to try to avoid that happening? And I think I can hold my head up and say, yeah, I have. I really have. It saddened me slightly in the response, you know, talking about the response. I mean, I've had emails from actually all over the world. I've had an awful lot of emails from NHS staff, doctors. And like you were just saying, they have said to me, look, Here's my story, and, and, and thank you for saying what you've said, and we're right behind you. But please don't share my name because my job would be at risk. And then you get online comments from the post that I put out where people refer to me as, as brave. Well, I, I mean, what kind of world are we living in where a person, a professional, can give an opinion and that be regarded as brave? A headmaster sticking up for the kids? Gosh, you're brave. Yeah. Who'd have thought that of crazy? that? <laughs> you know, isn't that crazy? Do you really believe the opinion polls saying that all these people back lockdown? Do you really think that the mainstream broadcasters are doing a good job of representing the broad range of British people at the moment? No, absolutely not. I mean, if I, if I think about my own community, I mean, I would say well over 90% of the parents in, in the school would send their children back to school tomorrow. Because they know the devastating impact that the lockdown strategy is having. And what do you think when you listen to the radio and watch the Tea Time news? Well, I've stopped doing that because I was basically swearing at the screen, continually shouting at the TV. And, you know, it's not good for my own mental health. Because it, it was always just one voice. And it doesn't matter what political party. It doesn't really seem to matter what um, newspaper you pick up. 
I get the feeling the narrative is just beginning to change. Um, and I'm pleased about that, but but I, I just hope it's not too late. Should we not have closed schools at all? Would you have kept schools open throughout? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure. I think last March, you know, I, I actually thought we were a bit slow in closing. Because it was unknown. It could have been the plague. Half of people that got COVID exactly. could have died rather than a fraction of 1%. Yeah, and I think hindsight's great. You know, you end up with 20-20 vision in hindsight. But at the time, it felt almost a wee bit late. I mean, I, I've got 70 members of staff, and in that final week that we were still open, I had 11 off, either unwell or self-isolating. And, you know, that then puts a huge strain on the remainder of the of, of the teachers in the school and being able to successfully get through each day. So you backed the initial lockdown, you yeah. backed the initial closure of schools yeah. last spring. Yeah, I mean, I think it went on too long. Um, I mean, personally, I mean, I, I think in retrospect, it might have been better to say close for a month and then open everything for a month. Close everything for a month and then open everything for a month. Because if the strategy is to stop the NHS being overwhelmed, we're not going to stop people dying, you know, but we, we can stop the NHS over being overwhelmed. And I, I think perhaps that kind of open-closed strategy might have worked better than just closing everything down for three three and a half months but you know i'm not an expert i don't know you know it's easy in hindsight and i and i understand that politicians have a difficult time and they have difficult decisions to make but at the end of the day children really matter and they are being ignored at the moment and it's frightening it's frightening me where are the teaching unions in all this one of our first guests on planet normal was alan johnson of course a former Labour Home Secretary, massively respected across the trade union movement, one of the most successful union leaders, really, of our generation, if you like. And yet he was critical of the teaching unions from the outset. And since then, the teaching unions, certainly the position of the leadership, has hardened even more. You've currently got the National Education Union saying they wouldn't open schools now, even if all teachers were immediately jabbed with the vaccine. I think the difficulty with unions is that they um, they take a, a position on behalf of the teaching profession, but in many cases, half the teaching profession won't agree with that stance. And I think that's the difficulty. I think unions are incredibly important for individual members when things go wrong and they need some level of protection. But when they speak for the entire teaching body, I think actually what it does is it ends up doing teachers a disservice because it creates an impression in the public's mind that, you know, either they don't care or they're kind of radicalised. And that's not the case. You know, again, many of the people that have written to me are teachers, you know, and from down south, you're saying we're desperate to get back to school. And Same at Planet Normal. Yeah, Same at Planet I think Normal. a lot of people think you're going to teaching for holidays. You don't. You're going to teaching because you want to make a difference. It strikes me as it struck Alan Johnson that there's often a disconnect between the trade union leadership who are interested in activism and maybe bashing a conservative government and the teaching rank and file, to use a phrase, who just want to get on with teaching. Yeah, well, I mean, the teachers, you know, that I know, they they want to be back in the classroom. I mean, you know, you can can understand that you want to protect the workforce, but we didn't close down supermarkets. We've still got construction working. Well, don't they matter? How disappointed have you been with the political leadership of this country as a whole across the parties, that there seems to be so little advocacy for children and particularly younger children? Well, there's no advocacy for children. There's none. I mean, they pay lip service to it. Nicholas Sturgeon was asked that question about children's mental health and the fact that a teacher with 30 years' experience had expressed concern. And she said, oh, well, we've had psychiatrists up here on the platform talking about it, as if what we really want is, is someone to fix the problems that children will undoubtedly have, where those problems should never even have existed in the first place. So it is, it's lip service. I have a parent in school who's, I don't want to say too much because I don't want to identify that person, but, you know, a child with significant um, risk of harm, self-harm, and who was put forward, referred to CAMS, which is the Child and Adolescent um, Mental Health Service, and was told that, yes, uh, your child is at risk, but we can't see them for 18 months. Well, I'm sorry, if a government is really interested in advocating for children, then you pump money into those services. I mean, the situation prior to the pandemic was bad enough in Scotland. A six-month waiting list for, for an appointment, for a, for a mental health appointment with a professional. Uh, but if we're talking 18 months now, I mean, it, it's just nonsense. It means that, you, you know, you have a child that suddenly develops a, an eating disorder, something that I am actually witnessing now for the first time in decades. And you go to um, 
a mental health professional and say, oh, yes, you are at risk, but we'll see you in July 2022. Well, you know, sorry, you know, if governments are interested in children, then you back that up with ensuring that there there is no waiting time for for a child that needs help. There's no point giving help 18 months down the line. The situation is lost by then. But I would come back to the point that that mental health professional shouldn't be required in the first place. Lockdown is going to create a generation of children that need some kind of counselling. It just, it's, it, honestly, it staggers me. It staggers me that children have been completely and utterly shafted yet again, as if they really don't matter. It just, it just makes me really incredibly sad that, you know, as a society, we, we just, we don't think about the children. We don't think about the impact. Or if we do, it's certainly not political parties that are doing it. And I think that they've actually, that political parties in opposition have missed something here. Because this is, I'm not a lone voice. You know, there's every parent in the country is worried. And not just worried, but they're witnessing the impact of lockdown. And they're trying to deal with it as best they can. I had a, a father on the phone this morning, really concerned about his son, saying, what do I do? When he went, you know, he's kicking off with online learning. I said, well, get his anarchy on and take him for a walk, take him for an hour. I said, what if he doesn't want to come? I said, get, grab him by the scruff of the neck and drag him. Because that hour's walk is what he needs. He needs to, to calm down and to see nature and to get back out in the fresh air and to see that the world is still operating. But I mean, imagine me taking that phone call and having to give that advice. I mean, this is just, it's the stuff of nonsense. And these kids that I've been talking about, I mean, these are, are normal, well-balanced, happy children. And suddenly there they are just, they're, they're off the edge. You know, and they are, they are being basically they're surrounded by vocabulary of death. Blimey. Oh, God. You know, this podcast is such an emotional roller coaster these days. <laughs> we have fun, don't we, Alison? We mm. make fun of each other. We make fun of the situation. We jab politicians in the eye and all the rest of it. And all of that is healthy. But sometimes some of the people we talk to, some of the human situations that we come across, just devastating. And that guy is the best of the best. You know, if I was a parent at his school, mm. I'd be emailing him and saying, thank you, mate. Well done. Had two feelings, really. One, gratitude that a man like Rod Grant has such tenderness and concern for the children in his care and horror at listening to the vocabulary. No one is championing children, PTSD, three to six to seven-year-olds hearing vocabulary of death on the radio, sleepwalking into a future that is dark, no idea what effect it will have on children. And you know, Liam, if I hear somebody say again, oh, children are resilient, they bounce back. We have no idea. We have never had this experiment where children are shut away for months, cut off from their friends and their teachers. We have no reason to say, oh, don't worry, they're resilient. As Rod expressed so powerfully, these subterranean problems, if you like, are are bubbling up in children. And I have two friends who have had lockdown babies or babies who are quite young going into lockdown. And they are talking about their very, you know, infants, juniors, not having seen anyone unmasked apart from their parents. How do we know that they'll bounce back? What what does it mean to be 11 months old and to have seen no faces practically except those of your parents? What does that mean? And with all respect to your friends and, and their dear, precious children, what has that done to the psychological makeup of those infants to have not been socialised? What's it doing to kids who, you know, three, four, five would be at nursery learning to interact with others? when a huge chunk of their life proportionately and those key formative years have been taken away from them. You know, we have to move on, Alison. We've got lots of fantastic emails to read out. But what I'd just say is we often bash the BBC here on Planet Normal, but there is a really good write-up by a health correspondent called Nick Triggle, who you've praised in the past and whose work I admire. Yes, he's excellent, isn't he? Nick has written, if you Google covid colon the devastating toll of the pandemic on children that came out four or five days ago it's a really good what we call in journalism a wrap Mm. of drawing in lots of different voices he quotes professor russ viner who's the president of the royal college of pediatrics and child health 
who has an awful lot of really interesting things to say. He quotes the NSPCC, of course, a huge voice in this area. Mm. Uh, another report, The Mental Health of Children and Young People in England 2020, produced by NHS Digital and the ONS. You have to do your own research, listeners, because this kind of stuff is not getting on the mainstream media, and it desperately needs to, and politicians need to know that ordinary people are seriously worried about this stuff. A lot of people in public life, their key workers, their kids are in school, their kids will be fine. An awful lot of ordinary people, the vast majority, ordinary families, their kids are not in school. It's doing enormous damage. It has to end as soon as possible. Now for some listener emails, a selection of the messages that you've sent to us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Do keep sending your wonderful, moving, informative messages. Liam and I really do love hearing from you. And as you'll hear, we, we learn an incredible amount from those emails. Here's one very powerful email from John that caught my eye this week. John says, I hear plenty of depressing NHS stories on your show. Let me add some observations from the last week of encountering hospital rules. My gorgeous wife and mother of our two young kids has had months of stomach problems. The GP, while sympathetic, could not really do anything and a consultant appointment was three months away. Being very fortunate, we had the option of health insurance via work, relief. As antibiotics had no effect and while we waited to see a doctor, my wife ended up in A&E with, with what was thought to be gastroenteritis. Despite much pain, she was sent home after a few hours after various IV drips. A few days later after, a CT scan and subsequently visiting the consultant by herself whilst I sat in the car park, she was told she needed an operation immediately. That is when the weirdness started. The consultant wanted to admit my wife there and then, but as they, a private hospital, are on standby for the NHS, no one can be admitted. The operating theatres stand empty. My wife wanted to start some treatment straight away, obviously, but she was told by the nurse that was not allowed without a COVID test. In fact, my wife was negative from a test the week before when we thought we should discount COVID as a possibility and have not left the house since. The consultant rang many clinical directors to be able to treat my wife, all to no avail. His advice then, listen to this, Liam, was for her to go to A&E and collapse on the floor. Blimey. I again left her outside A&E. None of the medical test results she took with her could be used. More delay. Even the previous consultant wrote a letter on that Sunday to help us. Another day of pain and she was admitted to a ward with just two other patients. My wife called me in tears from the pain as she had not seen a doctor in 12 hours and no one else could do anything for her. I called the ward on the way there and they then gave her some pain relief before I arrived. This incredibly strong woman, who can normally easily run a 10k, just about managed to walk to the ward door for a quick hug. The next day, she had one of the three emergency operations that day in that entire large North London hospital. There were about 20 staff in or around the theatre awaiting the results, as they had nothing to do. Three large tumours were removed. The emergency cancer test results will be given to her in three weeks despite the results being known, as she was told, when someone called to reaffirm the appointment date and time in case the post was not received. My wife is still in a lot of pain, but we really hope everything is okay. We have been lucky. The obvious question is how many people are not being operated on in these empty operating theatres who may not be so lucky? Keep up the good work you're doing, John. Well, John, from Planet Normal, we send you and your wife all the luck in the world. And I think that story, Liam, what can you say? You know, a person who deserves care, a young woman with it, with a young family, deserving to be seen for, you know, these, these tumours and really being given, given the runaround when she needed urgent treatment. Very powerful. As you say, we, we cite statistics, we cite research from organisations like Macmillan and so on. But when you hear a a real human story like that, it really does bring it home. This is from Lizzie. I'm not your usual listener. I turned 15 in mid-January, a lockdown birthday. 
and I'm writing you this email in my history lesson, where we're currently studying the history of hospitals. Ironic. Lizzie, get down to what you work. <laughs> As I'm young, please ignore my grammatical errors. Oh. In your last podcast, you mentioned the mental health strain on young people, talking to Lucy from Durham University. I felt compelled to write because I wanted to tell you the story of one of my close friends, who I'll keep anonymous. When we came back to school in September, whatever school was, she was noticeably different after those lost months when school was closed. One day she had a panic attack in our English lesson, and this was the first time I'd ever seen anything like that. It was so unexpected. I can't put it into words. I was guilty of believing that people with, quotes mental health issues just needed to grow a backbone to get a grip. Yet this ghastly lockdown has altered so much for everyone that I worry it's making such issues 10 times worse. In fact, we know it is. Liam and Alison, I find your podcast so reassuring, just like many others, I'm sure. Carry on doing what you're doing and we'll all carry on listening. Best wishes to both of you and your families, Lizzie. Well, Lizzie, there's nothing wrong with your grammar. No, great. And doesn't she illustrate exactly what Rod Grant was saying, Liam? We had an enormous number, a deluge of emails from listeners talking about the BBC uh, scaremongering coverage. People obviously really upset and angry about this. Just too many to read out. But here's an absolutely excellent one, which is from Janine, who is a former, very senior BBC news producer. I always found the general public who wrote to us on Radio 4 particularly annoying, says Janine. But I can only agree with you on their abysmal COVID coverage. No context, rarely any data to go along their doomsayer packages. As a relatively young person, I may be unique in thinking that their coverage is bringing down Britain. I have young children and I can't have TV news on. My perceptive five-year-old knows what a body in a bag on a trolley is. Dead. Shouldn't these packages be aired after the watershed? My son knew far too much in the first lockdown and developed OCD, which included him being unable to swallow food. He was so stressed. The Today programme is OK until Laura Doomsburg comes on and rips out any possible hope I still hold of there being a way out of this. As a public service broadcaster, the BBC must listen to the nation's mood and our mood isn't good. Yes, people are dying, but the risk is incredibly low. I scream and shout at my radio and TV. Pretty frightening as my ex-colleagues and friends still work there. What are they doing? I think the BBC are in their own bubble at Broadcasting House. Nothing much has changed for producers or editors. They keep going to work. Their kids are all in school. They really have no idea what it's like for everyone else trying to find some hope and be positive about it all. I'm saying nothing. I've, I've said my piece on the BBC. So here's an email from somebody I was actually at school with. I remember Steve as a snivelling junior boy when I was a big cheese <laughs> sixth form prefect. Now, he's actually a good guy. He was a damn good sportsman. And we were in the same house. And this email popped into the Planet Normal inbox. Dear Liam, last time we spoke was well over 30 years ago, just as I was getting out of my mum's car as she dropped me off at school. You did most of the talking and even mum got the message you weren't particularly impressed by my absence <laughs> at the running track the previous evening. Precious house points had been lost. <laughs> You'll be pleased to know I've now learned to wipe my own backside. Or maybe that's <laughs> a reference to my vocabulary 30 years ago. <laughs> and I went on to enjoy, up until this pandemic, a successful military and then civilian flying career. Thanks to you and Alison for putting together such an excellent podcast. Planet Normal really is the highlight of my week. But I wanted to write to you, says Steve, to say that I'm struggling, really struggling with this monster. A once fairly stable world's been turned completely upside down. Rational thoughts being attacked from all directions and nothing seems to follow fundamental principles anymore. We've been reduced to anonymized statistics. The statistics are being manipulated and reverse engineered to suit a narrative. My industry's in tatters. My livelihood hangs by a thread. I can't walk down the street without being constantly reminded of the fear coursing through my fellow humans' veins. People avoid me as if I have the plague, sweeping enormous circles to avoid a split second passing on the pavement. Many assess the risk of stepping out into the road in front of cars is worth it, and woe betide if I don't thank some of them for their acts of sacrifice. What have we done to ourselves and for what gain? 
Discussions with neighbours have become divisive. Anyone with a contrarian or even a questioning view is labelled irresponsible. Yesterday, I walked our family dog with my teenage daughter in a little copse just yards from our very middle-class home. We often use the time to air our thoughts and concerns and try to make some sense of what the future may hold for us all. As a dad, I feel so protective of my daughter, but I have so little to offer in the way of hope or aspiration for this beautiful young woman. What we desperately need now is leadership, says Steve. Mm. Despite encouraging vaccine news, we're still beaten back with facts and figures spouted with no context. The narrative suits a backside covering exercise from a government whose response to this pandemic has fallen very short of the mark. Thanks for taking the time to read this, Liam, and to you and Alison for Planet Normal. Well, thanks to you too, Steve, and my regards and apologies to your mum. <laughs> no apology for you, though, mate. You should have been at the running track, OK? <laughs> but take care. It's great to hear from you. Stay in touch. Nice to know you were such a tyrant all those years ago. <laughs> Steve, Steve, darling, I feel your pain. Every week I'm shouted at the side of the running track to get my shoes on. Honestly, he hasn't changed. This is one from Carolyn. Like yourselves, and I imagine the whole population of Planet Normal, I shed more than a few tears when I heard the sad news about Josephine. It seemed even more poignant when I thought back to the dignified and articulate manner in which Robert had coped with the heartless treatment he and countless others in his situation had been subjected to. Somebody needs to remind the majority of the members of Parliament, many of whom seem to have not a shred of compassion, that they should be acting in the best interests of their constituents and not themselves. With their protected salaries, they seem oblivious to the fact that children are going uneducated, illnesses other than COVID are going untreated, families are deprived of seeing their nearest, ha, a misnomer if ever there was one at the moment, and dearest, businesses are going to the wall, and the struggle to make ends meet for some is causing huge mental health problems. What a shame our Prime Minister has always acted on the information fed to him by the prophets of doom rather than listen to the balanced opinions of many of the knowledgeable experts who have visited Planet Normal. It seems that the act of instilling fear into the population has taken precedence overall. Keep feeding us the good news, Alison and Liam. Like many others, I long since gave up listening to the depressing outpourings from the BBC, and I prefer to wait for George's factual reports every Thursday. Thank you for all the common sense thinking for your positivity. Very best wishes to all the citizens of Planet Normal and, of course, to dear Robert. So many of you wrote to say how you, sad you felt about Josephine's death and I've passed on all your lovely wishes to, to Robert. And if you don't know who Robert and Josephine are, just listen to last week's podcast and you'll soon understand. Just a couple of amusing observations from our Planet Normal listeners. Victoria says, if Ursula von der Leyen resigns, let's send them Nicola Sturgeon, bureaucratic queen of Europe. How could she resist? And Gary says, I understand that Keir Starmer was one of those who castigated the government for not joining the European vaccine scheme, but he seems to have gone strangely quiet on the subject. Obviously, Keir excels at hindsight, but is less than mediocre at foresight. Brilliant, Gary. Thank you. <laughs> Can I just say before we go, nerve tag, because we haven't said it so far on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it from Planet Normal for another week. Our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. But don't worry, we'll be back for another trip next week. And Alison and I will be responding as normal to your comments on the Telegraph website on Thursday morning, 11am to 12 noon. Go to the Planet Normal article at telegraph.co.uk and the link's in the show notes to this episode. I'm going to be practising my bog snorkelling so I can cope with uh, working with co-pilot Halligan. I'm sticking a bung in your bog snorkel. <laughs> <laughs> if you enjoy our trips to Planet Normal, please leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. We've had some really lovely reviews lately and leaving a five-star review does help others to find us. So as we speed away from our beloved planet normal, our thanks as ever to our producers, Reese Gunter, Louisa Wells and Elliot Lampett, and our editor, Theodora Leludis. Stay safe and keep in touch with us and with each other. Steve, I'll see you at the running track. And until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. But on this occasion, let's leave the last words to the marvellous Captain Sir Tom Moore, whom we were so lucky to have. 
I think that you really have to look forward to things being, being better. I've, I've always said tomorrow is a good day. All my life I've been an optimistic person to think that if you had a bad day or two, things will certainly get better. And in my life, they always have. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.